So it's a Friday evening in the U.S. and um, 9 a.m. here in, in Thailand on Saturday morning. So it's Friday evening, I guess, for you guys. And um, just published uh, uh, and then available through our friend Parker uh, on Skype, a new book called Seeing with the Eye of the Dhamma, which is uh, Achan Dhammavitu's new book. Now, he has been living at Wat Suen Mok, and he came, I'm not sure about his ordination date, but he came just before Bhikkhu Buddhadasa died. That was in 2000, excuse me, 1993. So he'd been a monk now, uh, coming up 30 years. And he's English, or was. Now he's lived in Thailand for 30 years. And so he actually lives close to uh, uh, Achan Po at Deepabawan much of the time, as well as at, uh, the surrounds of Watsonmo. So uh, Scott asked a question about the book, its title, Seeing with the Eye of the Dhamma. And Scott says, yes, let's talk about that, about the book. And I was going to say, let's not talk about the book now because I haven't read the book yet. I have only squirreled through several things to see the, uh, the well-known quotation by uh, the Dalai Lama, that the Dalai Lama considered Bhikkhu Buddhadasa his elder brother, which is another word for teacher. And we've got that video. Uh, so there's other things in, in there. And also, I know both of the authors. Actually, Santicaro um, is the editor. And that he does a really good job of that because he really knows Thai. And he's been around Bhikkhu Buddhadasa a whole lot longer and a whole lot earlier than uh, uh, Dhamma Bhikkhu. Uh, <clears throat> So let me read the book and we'll talk about that. Today, let's talk about what Scott was talking about in the sense of the title, Seeing with the Eye of the Dhamma. What does that mean? Okay. And I'll give you the very, very quick short answer. Wakey, wakey. <laughs> okay, that's the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up and take a look at what's going on, okay? And so the symbolic part is a human eye or a physical eye. Now, at Watsu and Mok, if you don't mind me talking about it again, there is a mural on the side of a building. The thing is huge. I've even got photos of Bhikkhu Buddhadasa standing in front of it with a group of people pointing at it. I mean, it's that big and it's, you know, up there on the wall, it's unmissable. But it's not the only one that I've seen. There are other copies of that particular one. But in fact, I was quite shocked to see a Hindu version of it at Wat Chulapatan uh, that didn't have the same motif, but it was exactly the same message with all the same items on it. And the one at Watsu and Mok has an Egyptian theme to where it looks like a Pharaoh kind of guy that's sitting on the throne. And he's got a great big eye. That's his headdress, but it's a huge eye. And beside him <clears throat> is a basket of these big eyes. 
and out in front of him is three figures. One is bowing in gratitude, wearing the eye. The second guy is adjusting his eye, trying to get it gone. The third guy is just catching and starting to, uh, to work with it. While up in the right-hand corner, there's a whole lot of stick figures that are running away who have no eye. Now, what is the meaning of all of this? Does anybody want to take a wild guess? Um, yeah, I guess it's a symbol for uh, um, for for uh, seeing clearly, like uh, the people who aren't looking uh, with with the eye, the metaphorical eye, are like uh, running around like chickens with their head with their heads cut off. I guess <laughs> literally, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, because they don't know what's going on. They're confused. They're ignorant. So they're just scared and just running around, running amok. And because uh, they can't see, I guess. Right. Well, in in this whole photo or a mosaic, uh, a huge wall drawing must be like 30 feet by 10 feet, you know, big thing. Um, there's only four people on that that have anything to do with an eye. And you have a dozen or more running away but that's only symbolic but in fact if the uh if it had been uh let us say more accurate rather than merely symbolic the whole photo would be completely covered up with those people <laughs> because they greatly outnumber the few who are truly interested in the dama eye now, there's another point. You you actually mentioned it, uh, um, Scott, <laughs> in the sense of like chickens with their head cut off. Right? How did these people come to have their heads cut off? When did that happen to each individual one of them? When did that ignorance in childhood, right, that they were beheaded in childhood and they have been running around like chickens with their heads cut off much of their lives. And so that's the life that they know, which has to do with confusion, because you can't see where you're going, can't see the future. So they don't know how to look, so they keep running into things. Which, on a side note, Matt, <laughs> this morning, you were quite surprised to see a, 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 what a psychic message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I explained it to him, it was just perfectly normal. What was that about? Um, well, you tell the story, Matt. Uh, well. I was contemplating whether I should join this meeting or not, back and forth, back and forth. And then uh, I decided, like, roughly about the time I decided that I was going to join the call, Don Rato said, see you in five. And then I said, you must be a psychic. 
<laughs> oh, now I understand, because it was more not the events that happened or the mechanism, which was what I was planning on or taking in, which was the engineering point of view. You were going after split-second timing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that it was the timing that it happened. That's what makes one a good comedian, his timing. <laughs> so that was quite enjoyable. That's interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, but the, the point was, is that you had clicked on something that I had uh, a pop-up notice of. And so I knew that you had been on Skype. And so that's why I, I said it. Because here you were. So that was the timing of it. All right. So that's the point now is, is that we can do that kind of investigation and look at what's really going on. As opposed to, oh, it's magic. Or, wow, look at something spectacular. When in fact, everything is ordinary. It's just sometimes it's really well timed. <laughs> So that picture that shows all of those people being headless are in the vast majority, mainly because of uh, se several reasons. I would say offhand, the most important reason is, is that when they do, if they ever do hear Dhamma, they will say, I don't care, or oh, that's not what I'm looking for. And then that's about 90% of them. In other words, they're looking for something else, especially if they wind up hearing that the, the teachings of the Buddha is not to find the high points and feel very good because you've reached the high point, that it's actually the ability to create the high points because that's your choice. And so a lot of them said they can't do that. They need a magic wand first. They need a holy wood or something like that. Maybe a plastic Jesus. Some shakti pot. They need like Some a shakti. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Fine. Or um, <clears throat> a savior. This is what they're all taught. That's actually the beheading. The taking away of the the eye that every child is born with. And if you leave that in there, that child will be considered a barbarian because he can see clearly, but he doesn't have any wisdom with it. And in fact, that's what a lot of the movies are about. There's the barbarian kid, the rebel, you know, rebels without a cause, but he can see the cause. He just doesn't know how to deal with it. And in fact, that's in each one of us that we recognize that we have been, if not completely blinded, at least blinkered. There's <laughs> many times we recognize that we've been lied to. Okay, that's the best way to make a child um, feel fill that in with words like stupid or crazy or whatever like that. 
that in fact the psychologists have known that, about that for a long time that if a mother continuously lies to one or more of her children whatever it is they wind up being uh lied to they will both be completely confused and angry about it and they make really really interesting psychiatric cases and the, the word that is used for the mom within the psychological circles is crazy maker. She literally makes her kids crazy by lying to them. Now, sometimes within normal society, moms lie to kids, but that's only because they're passing down the lies that they were told, which means passing down craziness generationally. And the psychologists know all about that from one angle, but the Buddha recognized it in a general kind of way. This is that we've been blinded. We were able to see when we were kids. You guys know this. You know that when you were really good, you knew what was going on. But you got used to lying, the lies and you went along with what you were told, becoming a dumb animal, doing what you were told to do. As an interesting gesture, you just made. <laughs> That's what getting blinded is all about. That's how it happens. And many of us then get blinded by greed in the sense of, oh, what will make me happy is I can go get what I want. Now, where did they learn that? That's a lie. If I get what I want, I'll be happy. I think that that's almost instinctual. It's, that's part of being barbaric, I think, in fact, is going around trying to get the things that I want. And so uh, when we uh, can see what we want, like what we want, but we can't have what we want because somebody's keeping it from us, we feel cheated. We want justice. We want our way. Every kid's like this. Every one of us is a little barbarian. That's why society puts us in schools and slaps us around to try to, to get us to conform. But what they don't recognize is that they're lopping off one of the most important instincts that a child has. It's <laughs> his ability to think and to see and to look. And so we wound up all conforming to all of that crowd that's running away. But some of us recognize, wait a minute, I have been blinded. Let me go find out what's real. And I'm not talking about the reality of some magic, of some story that's supernatural. Let me go find something that's real, that an engineer can see that's real. <laughs> I think Scott's lost his power. <laughs> ah, so that's that question of the ignorant part. Now let's start looking at what this eye is. This eye of Dhamma, the eye of the ability to wake up and look at what's going on. But 
before you get into that, uh, one time you mentioned, I was thinking about one time you mentioned that uh, seeing with uh, Dama eyes was like, uh, if you're seeing, if you're watching a movie, it's like uh, thinking of the camera angles and the special effects. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't remember saying that? Yes, in fact, what that means is, is that you're living in the here now, moment by moment, while you're watching a movie, you know that this is a movie that you're watching, rather than joining in and jumping into the action or getting into the movie, which is what the entire point of the movie is, is to get you absorbed into it. Mm -hmm. But I, I was thinking that when you say that, you we don't have to always pay attention to the breath just when we remember to or when we need to. Uh, it's like uh, sometimes it's all, it's all right to uh, get carried away by the movie theme and only when we are having a rough time with Duca, remember and get out into uh, movie maker mode. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can handle can that. Yes, okay. And one of the things, though, that we need to keep a little bit of track of is how much do I care about the movie? In other What words, am, well, am I the star of the show actor in this in the movie that I'm watching? Is that me? So that when I'm beat up and tossed around, when that guy is beat up and tossed around, I feel beat up and tossed around. And when his punch hits some face of some other dude that's already designated by the movie makers as the villain, that you're supposed to hate him, then do you when you're in that movie? Because you become the star of the show and you're the one who is up and down. In other words, you identify with that actor. Or you might identify with it if it's a war movie and there's wars all over the place and you see this captain die and that sergeant get a hero and all of this kind of stuff going on. You're still taking a side. Okay? And a lot of that is cultural. For instance, if you were born and raised in Germany, you probably would see a World War II movie and see it differently from a different angle or point of view than someone who was born and raised in America watching the same movie. And they're going to get a different view out of that movie because of which attitudes they take into with them into the movie, right? Which is all the baggage that we're already carrying. And the answer to that right now is, is that, wake up, dude, this is a movie. The movie already has an ending. You don't have to worry about what happens. The movie has already said, if you really have to know what's at the end of the movie, go to the end of the movie, and then you might not want to even finish it from the middle. What's the point of all of this, you know? Or if it's two guys racing two cars, and one of them's the police and the other one's bullet, or maybe both of them are cops or whatever like that, but you're supposed to choose your side, and the, and the movie tells you which side to take. Is that not true? That's like uh, another word for identification, like choosing a side, picking sides. Pick a side. That's an interesting one. Another way of talking about that is having a dog in the fight, having some skin in the game. And we do this ignorantly, and we've done it from childhood. 
And so this is the item that the Buddha talks about into uh, the statement in the Pali is lower your banner. Okay, a banner is like a flag. A flag is like an icon or identification. So when Democrats and Republicans, both of them are red, white, and blue, but one's definitely a donkey and the other one's definitely a, uh, an elephant, right? And if you identify with either one of those, that's going to lead to problems. But if you recognize that that's Republican, that's Democrat, and that's okay with me, <laughs> and you don't take sides, then you don't get identified. But if you identify as a Republican, then everything bad happens in the name of Republicans, and you're going to feel bad. And not only that, but if you're a Republican, they want you to feel angry because you're going to, so you're going to be angry. You're going to wind up thinking like Republicans because you already identified yourself as a Republican. And off you go down the sewer of being a Republican. Or if you identify with Democrats, then you begin to start thinking like a Democrat. You begin to throw money around wildly. You begin to recognize that there's corruption everywhere. So why not join the least corrupt group? Okay, it's going in the right direction, but you got to be on some side. So let's go to the Democrats. So everything that happens bad to the Democrats and down we go into that Democrat sewer. Every time something good happens to the Democrats, we feel good. But if you don't identify, with either the Democrat or the Republican, or the Christian flag, or the Muslim flag, or the Buddhist flag, or any other kind of identification, then you don't have to suffer the pains of that identification. You can be free, you can be above it all. Don't identify with anything. Drop the banner. Okay, back into the, uh, uh, to the headless chickens now. They are taught that they have to take sides. They talk about you're supposed to be a patriot. You're supposed to vote. But then they tell the other side, you're supposed to stop those people from voting. And so uh, wars are intentionally created because of people identifying with my group, my uh, tribe actually is the right word for it. This is tribalism okay and um the, the the tribalism is actually comes out of the nesting instinct that if we leave our nest it's dangerous so we got to stay in our uh nest we got to stay in our herd we got to stay in our tribe because it's dangerous out there now who's dangerous oh the ones who are out there <laughs> and so everybody from someplace else is dangerous. That's instinctual. And Jesus teaches to feed the uh, uh, the newcomer. If he needs clothes, give him something to uh, to wear. But the Republicans are off into the hatred crowd, and so they want to hurt and harm the immigrants, make them go home. This is our land, right? which is actually going against the very religion that they scream about. Interesting like that. So the Democrats do whatever they do also. Uh, 
but there's a lot of squabbles and this and that's and it goes back and forth. Right now, it seems to be swinging in the Democrat side. So let's all swing good to the Democrats, but it's not going to stay over there. It's going to swing back. It goes back and forth all the time. And if you want that pendulum to be one direction, you're going to be hurting when it's the other. <clears throat> so long as you identify, I am the pendulum. The reality is you're not the pendulum. You're not this samsara cycle. This is what the guru is talking about is get off the cycles. The ups and down cycles, when, because we can see them if we begin to look. Recognize that I like this part of the cycle and I don't like that part of the cycle, which means now you're doomed to this. I like it. I don't like it. I like it. I don't like it. I like it. I don't like it. Ignorant cycle. Till we wake up to it. And this is what the practice is all about. Anapanasati. But when Based we, when that whole cycle is the breath, then it's so good. Well, when it is all wholesome, it's all good. Yeah. Right. But okay. it's like um, when when we're in that tiny part of the breath cycle that that should be like the little insatisfaction. We learn how to be satisfied in those unsatisfactory by default feelings, so that then we can project that onto bigger cycles in. A, Precisely, and it all has to do with what you want based upon what you identify as I am. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the whole point about anatta. One of the primary deeper teachings of the Buddha that almost everybody understands is this issue of identification, the ID, the banner you carry credit cards that you use, the driver's license that you have, is all identification. So and when we so, just breathe, are we just breathing creatures? Just breathing. You're not identifying with anything. I am not that. I am, <laughs> officer, I'm not the one you're looking for. <laughs> I'm not that. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not here. I'm not there. I'm just not. Okay. That I don't have to keep choosing and picking and wanting and uh, and whatnot and just be satisfied with the way things are. Without having to attach or grab hold of any of them and identify with it. Because all of that stuff is in cycle. All of it is in play. All the words were at the stage. This is what we, uh, Buddha refers to as the world in the sense of Lokatara, become above the world. Imagine that anything that you attach to would be like picking something dirty off of the ground. Oh, you see a rag down there, you pick it up and it's mine. Next thing you know, you've got a cold, a really bad cold. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. somebody who had the cold dropped that rag and you picked it up, it's mine. 
Okay? That's how germs are packed. Okay? Mental germs. I think they call them memes. You can't pass memes to people who don't pick them up. Who don't believe everything that they've heard, especially if it's supposed to be good. Or it's supposed to be something so bad that you've got to do something about it. And so that's what our whole world is about. That's, in fact, what's happened now is with the Democrats and the Republicans is that they're put into the corners of, oh, we are so put upon and we really need to fight back and regain our glories and all of that on one side. And on the other side, they're barely struggling. Oh, we need a democracy. Those guys over there are going to destroy everything. And so they're all in that kind of thing. But one is greed and the other one is ill will. And so there they are uh, in, in that cycle. That's what politics is all about. Come out of politics. Don't vote for any of them. Let's have some friends. <laughs> Let's not worry about it. Hello, Robert. Robert has just joined us. Hi, guys. Hi, Robert. Hi, Robert. Good to see you. See you, too. Good evening. He's in the dark. <laughs> Funny thing about that, he's in the dark. Shall we give him an eye? <laughs> Robert, we've been talking about the eye of the Dhamma, seeing with the Dhamma eye. Oh, great. Which That's is wonderful. a new book, the title of the new book uh, uh, done by uh, Dhamma V2, who, by the way, is within 20 miles of here. Very pleased that he's uh, put out such a beautiful work. Oh, that's great. I'll have to check that so out. I'm a big fan of Dhamma V2. I, I saw him when I was at Swan Milk, and he was fantastic. Yeah, and that's when he was still in diapers. <laughs> he's, he's an Ajahn now. <laughs> wow. That's great. Is he um, working with Eric at all? Has Eric met him? Actually, no. Um, it, it, it seems that <clears throat> Ajahn Bikabu uh, excuse me, Achan Po was uh, traveling with a large group of monks, and uh, uh, Eric kind of got involved and in touch with them as a group before they any of them got to the Wat, or actually to a deeper Hawaiian. <laughs> and one oh, of the wow. senior monks, they, he saw the diamond in the rough with, with uh, Eric, and so uh, Eric he went over uh, a week early before the uh, retreat was to start on the 11th, but he didn't stay there long enough to even get the retreat started. He went back to Watsuanmo with his friends, the, uh, the monks who he met on the way, which is uh, a senior monk. And he says that it looks like exactly what happened with you. In the sense that Achan <laughs> Po took me under his wing, 
Achan Po in those well, days did not speak much English, but he spoke Dhamma pretty good. <laughs> well, and that's what that's Eric great. says is that he's got a teacher who doesn't know much English, but he sure knows the Dhamma. Oh, wow. I don't, that's wonderful. Yes. So uh, that's, that's that story. And the story of the Dhamma Eye we're actually right in the middle of recognizing. You see, uh, that Dhamma eye, when, a, when one is awake and sees things the way that they are, it gives that one a sense of confidence hmm. that this is part of the uh, growth out of being the headless. The ones who can't see what's going on, the ones who are in the dark, even if they know they're in the dark, they're still in the dark, they're confused. And everyone who comes in Dhanapanasati comes in confused about what to do. It's part of the process of waking up hmm. to one's own confusion. And so well, that's the beginning of the path is to wake up to I am confused, but I can see. Let me look. Let me look and look and look and look and look and look and keep looking until I can see. Now, actually, on that um, uh, example of that um, mural, that uh, uh, mosaic, the one who is just catching the eye is the one who is still in confusion. But at least now he can see well enough that he knows that he's confused. The guy who is look and look and keep looking and practicing, that's the guy who's adjusting his eye. You keep doing that. You keep looking. You keep adjusting. You keep coming back to remember to look at what you're feeling. Look at how you're doing. Look at the identifications that you make. Look at who you think you are. If you're watching a movie, are you the movie? Or are you the one who is watching a screen? knowing that it's a screen that he is watching okay that's exact uh, uh here's a, a way of looking at it have you ever heard about uh, certain animals and they've got a lot of photos about it that a cat for instance will see his reflection in a mirror and then jump wildly okay because they can't identify the distinction between what's a mirror or not. But if they go behind it and look and come back and with a bit of investigation, they can recognize, they even scratch it and recognize this is a piece of glass. This is not a real cat that looks as big and tough and bold as I am, which is terrifying to find somebody as good and exactly the way that I think that I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a terrifying thing for a cat to see his own reflection in a mirror and mistake that for reality. Hmm. How many times do we look and we see something that isn't there? It's what we make of it. In fact, I've got an old story about that. This happened. Remember that I was in high school bands and all of that kind of stuff. Okay. And I see a guy walking down the street now under his arm without a case is an exposed French horn, a beautiful French horn with something very strange about it. And that is, is that it was made out of fiberglass. 
because I played a fiberglass tuba, a fiberglass sousaphone, you know, because fiberglass makes them lightweight, but it's not the best sound. You need brass to do brass sounds. <laughs> and so when I saw that fiberglass uh, French horn, I was kind of overwhelmed. And I came over and take a good look and inspection of it. <laughs> it was a, a white frisbee and white tennis shoes. And I had mistaken. Well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But at least I did the inspection. I looked and then I looked. And as I was looking, I began to see what it really was. The first impression was an image that I had created in my mind out of my past. I had identified with sousaphone fiberglass. Huh. That fiberglass made that whatever he was carrying into a fiberglass French horn. Hmm. Because it's in brass. You know the differences between fiberglass and brass is that brass is brass colored and fiberglass is white. So that's the point. We don't see what's there often. We see what comes to mind quickly out of our past and we pop that stuff together without keep looking and looking and looking. And so we need to keep looking and looking and looking over and over and over again. And that's what that adjustment is. That sometimes it takes several years for us to keep looking and keep looking and keep looking. But if we practice every day and we practice often to keep looking, pretty soon that thing will get right in place. A good marksman can recalculate his sight after only one or two shots. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the way that we begin to understand is, is that if we keep looking and keep adjusting, we'll know how to adjust it so that we can see things pretty clearly. I have another example. I have a, yes, friend, that, <laughs> I have a friend that sometimes teases me by telling me he did something inappropriate that involves me. So, and he, he hasn't done it that many times that I have caught up to it. I don't caught on to it and this time he did it and he told me yeah I talked to this friend of yours and told him blah 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 and uh, I was already thinking about how to deal with that and asking him questions about it and he was like nah I'm just kidding but I noticed that my the veins in my brain had already swollen up a bit <laughs> and I was like how, when did this reaction begin and I'm trying next time I'm going to when I read something that, that he texts, like not believing right away, because I think that's where it starts when, when you decide what you believe, because then you start to think about how to deal with your interpretation of what you're seeing or perceiving. And when you start doing that, thinking about how to deal with something that may not be there, that's when the stress begins, not right when you <laughs> believe it. Right, but that's because instead of actually adjusting the Dhamma eye to see, we're spinning the old wheels. You have to recognize what's delusion and what's not delusion. Sometimes we think that, that we're actually adjusting the eye when in fact what we're doing is we're just spinning in delusional circles. So a lot of it does have to do with actual eyes to actually look and to actually listen to what's happening around you and one of the clear examples of that is is that almost Discern everybody who actually looks between go ahead 
Oh, sure. Uh, would you say the best way to discern between using the Dhamma eye and being in delusion is, is perhaps the results? You know, like the results being if, if you are happier and freer, um, one is actually more likely to be. There busy. is no other way. The question is, mm -hmm. how long later does it take for you to see the results? Can you see the results in process? Or do you have to have a whammy at the end of the result? Okay. So, yes, this is all about cause and effect. So results is part of the practice. Is not only do we see the unwholesome thought, we see the damage that they're done. That's why next time we're going to look quicker. You're going to look better. You're going to see more clearly so that you can avoid those kinds of results. Then, hmm. in fact, that's one of the things that the Buddha said in Sutra number 12 in the, um, uh, the Lion's War is when he talks about that his knowledge of karma. The law of karma that was so common back then as well as now in all the religions there's a law of karma. That is, if you suck up and are a good little boy, somebody someday is going to pat you on the head. But if you screw up, we're going to kick your ass. <laughs> I mean, name me a religion or a government that doesn't have that. Right. Okay, so that's the whole point that we have in this mindset that we have is, is that there is cause and effects but we don't understand the relationship between the cause and effects. The Buddha says we need to look at that relationship between the causes and effects. And sometimes we have time to look, and sometimes we have a time to reflect, and sometimes we can see it coming. So that we can get out of the way so that the uh, effect that would have been there doesn't have to happen. One of the big ones by uh, that, do, by the, go ahead. Uh, do you think the cause and effect um, investigation is obscured by the fact of conditionality? Well, everything is complicated. And that's why it continues to take more uh, investigation is cause oftentimes that conditionality that you're talking about is what we're trying to ignore so that we can see the direct relationship and the cause and effect. And the answer to that is no, the conditionality is definitely there in the mix and needs to be a part of the investigation. So how would you parse so, between, say, cause and effect and conditionality? How would you uh, discern between the various causes? Um, or actually, that has to do, I mean, there's so many tens of thousands of examples that I don't even know where to begin. But what we can uh, talk about is not necessarily the examples per se, but the actual process of beginning to look at what's going on. I mean, I think that what you're talking about is in relationships and you've already seen the cause and effect stuff that's happened and how you can slowly move someone's opinion by continuing to move them in that direction. That other people can become conditioned by your intentional conditioning. This is mudita, is sympathetic vibration. 
If you keep vibrating a happy song, people start to vibrate a happy song with you. That's one of the sure. reasons why hecklers want to get uh, comedians angry, because if you get the comedians angry, he's lost it. I mean, he's lost his audience for sure. But they can't be for comedy. He's got to stay funny. <laughs> it's actually funny how that works with comedians. You know, um, I, I've heard, I've, yeah, there are certain comedians I've listened to plenty of times on podcasts, and they love to talk about how when they were first starting out, they would bomb often, you know, and how that's such a difficult experience for a comedian to keep bombing and how it's kind of an endurance sport, right? And the comedians that stick around are the ones that can endure, you know, having a bad set and bombing. However, once they're famous and well-known beyond a certain point, they they start to attract a following such that, you know, their jokes are just seen as intrinsically funny due to their high profile, right? Um, and it's quite funny Actually, on that Actually, I would say that what, one of the conditions, though, is his performance and his timing that he's learned by watching his audience reaction. Yes, and so the jokes that he told ten years ago may be the same jokes with the same words, but now the way he says it is funny. And in fact, one of the things that I have seen about um, comedians is is that most of them will resort to becoming a clown rather than <laughs> staying a comedian. They'll dance in front of their audience and they'll do this, that, and the other actions. So. Uh, put on great big strained grip uh, faces uh, and <clears throat> other things like that. And those, when the, the thought comes, is that, yeah, that's funny, but I'm not a clown. <laughs> I'm a comedian. <laughs> sure. And, and, and so there's, there's that quality that, that part of it is uh, increasing one's repertoire, timing, and other things like that, that, so again, what I'm saying, gosh darn it, I didn't realize, let me wakey wakey here and say that they keep doing it over and over and over again, repeating and beginning to look at what's going on and they begin to get good at it. It becomes a skill that most people never develop because they keep bombing and they don't like the bombing. And so they don't keep practicing in front of an audience. <laughs> So becoming a school comedian is nothing but Dhamma. That's so true. And it's it's so <laughs> funny because, you know, we've never really talked about this in the context of comedy, but it's completely true. I think the skills required to become a great comedian are quite similar to those to become a good Dhamma practitioner. You know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it, it's never giving up, right? It's continuing to remain optimistic and happy and wholesome and, and not really caring about what others think, you know, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> is just kind of wonderful. Yeah, to unify one's own mind rather than being scattered around the crowd that's uh, in the audience. But going back to the identification that we were talking about when you first joined, that we identify with this or that. And if the comedian on stage identifies with one of the people in the audience and it happens to be a heckler, he is doomed. 
so it better not right. to identify uh, with anyone in the audience. And in fact, uh, good uh, performers, and uh, I think it's part of the school. One of the jokes is, is to imagine when you're on stage that everybody on stage is either completely naked or dressed in their underwear. <laughs> Don't identify with anybody's clothing. See them as completely naked and exposed. And that way, you don't have to identify with it. Right. Uh, I'm because, curious to hear your thoughts. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I've heard before that comedians have a suicide rate that is 10 times the average population. Um, I knew or, you were going to get back to that. Yes, and not yeah. only that, but the, not only is the suicide rate very high, but they often... Are those who survive do so quite miserably? <laughs> okay. Right. So, so and there's very, on? very few of them. And I'll give you one example that I know of who actually survived that was Flip Wilson. One who didn't was Jerry Lewis. Hmm. I may be going too far back. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, Flip Wilson uh, uh, retired and bought a mansion and lived very happily with it, with all his kids. Okay, one that didn't is uh, um, Elvis Presley. He didn't do it. He, he, he was a stage performer, but he did not get his inside of his mind straightened out. Michael Jackson is another. One of the big examples would be uh, Judy Garland. Hmm. You know her story. She committed suicide, but she, uh, she was Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz and had hundreds and hundreds of movies. She was a great big star. Uh, they promoted her wildly, but she always felt insecure. Do they really love me? Do they really like me? But what she was actually doing was she was seeing the fraud in the Hollywood. Right. But it's not me they love. They don't know me. All they know is what they see on stage, and that's not me. That was <laughs> well, if she, for her to <laughs> throw it all out. <laughs> if she would have gone a step further, she would have said, I don't even exist. <laughs> yeah. Or if she would have done it like Lincoln says, what the hell, let's enjoy the show. <laughs> yeah. Just enjoy the fact that this is a performance. And that happens often with actors also who gain the real skill of um, what they call method acting, of becoming the part. And then in their normal life, they can't stop doing that. They don't know who they are because they're always a character that they have played. Right. And what are your thoughts on that? Like if you were to, if you had a student who is a method actor, um, how would you advise them um, with respect to keeping out of the dukkha but retaining the method acting skill? Actually, I would say to look at now your own mind. Keep looking, find out who you are, find out what thoughts you've got, recognize that you can change that because, look, you were already able to change everything on the outside to become an actor. You can change your voice, you can change your expressions, you know exactly how to do all of that stuff. Let's wire the thing correctly so that you could do that happily. 
then you can be whatever you want to be. They've got real skills because they've been practicing being somebody else. Now that you know that you're not who you were, what's the question now is who the hell am I going to be? And the answer to that, anything you want to be right now. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Have you ever had so, a of, That's oh, reality. Oh. It's not wonderful. You just call it that. That's. I mean, you can get used to anything, including things you <laughs> used to think were wonderful. When you see that they're, yeah, they're wonderful. So what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that whole quality then is don't identify with anything. If you're uh, on stage, don't identify with the actor of the part that you're in. You don't identify with anyone in the audience. Wait a minute. Isn't that really, really good advice for everybody? Because all the world's a stage and everybody's an actor and everybody's under the delusion that they're center stage. They are in their own part of the stage. They are in their own life. And the worst part of it is, and they're reading a script that they were given by mommy and daddy. So that script is actually the blinders. You have to read the script rather than look at what's going on around you and recognize everybody's reading a script. Right. <laughs> Everybody is going around doing what they were told to do. And when we can see that, that's getting that Dhamma eye. And now we can put it on and start really looking. And when we really see what's going on, we'll get off stage. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on George Carlin? Oh, gosh, I think that we've been talking about him the whole time. <laughs> He developed some really, really beautiful little skills. One of the skills that I really like about him is that he will get a whole long list of words that begin to go drifting in a certain direction, but he's using it as examples, like things he bought at the store or whatever like that. And his pattern, just his timing is beautiful. Hmm. Right? Um, he also had a lot of Dhamma in what he could see and what he was talking about. And so he could see the world pretty clearly. What he could not see is how badly he actually didn't like it. <laughs> if he could have seen the world as it was and actually felt like what a joke this is, rather than being a joke on the outside in front of his audience, but in the inside is real. Right. So he couldn't make that change. But right. while if I were going to be a comedian on stage, it would be George Garland that I would be imitating. Hmm. Certainly. You know, it is funny. He he does seem to demonstrate a lot of anguish in his comedy, especially in his later years. More so. No, than his it's, later years. it's surprise. His his number one. I look at his face when he goes like, you know, he's when he becomes the clown right at the end of the pattern. When he becomes the clown, look at that, hmm. because the clown is the real part of him. Hmm. It's like, how could this possibly be true that things are the way that they are? 
and started just recognizing, yeah, man, get off stage. Just watch the show. You are part of the show. Enjoy the show when you're part of the show instead of hating it. You know, it's funny. There's a, a line from George Carlin that he said, when you're born today, in today's day and age, you got a ticket to the freak show. And if you're born in America, you get a front row seat. <laughs> but did he point out that he's the freak on stage? I don't think so, no. I, I don't think so. That's the whole point. That's where real Dhamma comes in, is when he recognizes and sees that he's the freak that's on stage, then he can begin to change it. Hmm. And that's the part that he couldn't see. But he hmm. could see that all the world's a freak show. And hmm. Americans have a front row seat. Yes, I got that. <laughs> that's not always true. Sometimes the Ukrainians have a front row seat. <laughs> <laughs> I guess right now that's the case. <laughs> right. But who knows what the future is going to be? I mean, it may be Russia very soon on the front row. <laughs> so that's the identification. If we would stop identifying as a freak, and see that we have been identifying as a freak and stop identifying with that and stop identifying with not just that freak, but the blue freaks, the red freaks, the freaks with red flags with gold little things on them. Identifying any myself is with any flag is not a good idea because something bad is going to happen to the people who identify with that flag. And if you identify with it, you're going to feel bad. So why identify with anything? Do you have any pointers on how to spot when we are reinforcing those little identifications? Like... Yeah, look at how you feel. It's that old see, feel thing. Look at how you, look at the thoughts you're having, look at how you feel and you'll recognize, yeah, that's not a very wholesome thing to do is to identify with whatever boxers in the ring. But when we're not uh, good feeling like it's but harmful right away. Pardon? But let's say, I, I imagine like there are some occasions where we don't feel like it's harmful right away. But we're, That's we're still... Point. Okay, let's go down that rat hole for a minute. We do the things that we do do because we seek gratification and we are, uh, let us say, somewhat satisfied with the, some little gratification that we get out of things. But we do get gratification out of doing them. And so we keep doing them and get a little bit of gratification, even though in many cases the gratification itself diminishes. Okay, like how many times can the heroin shooter upper shoot up <laughs> and it's got it's got diminishing uh returns but we but the desire doesn't diminish okay but the returns do and so uh that that if we cannot see that and recognize that we're not getting quite the gratification that we once thought we were getting. Then we begin to make 
the, let us say, cost-benefit analysis. We begin to see the danger in what we're doing. And when we rate the danger with the gratification that we're doing, that's when we recognize all oh, the danger outweighs the, the gratification in this case. Let me find a way out of this. And so this is the teaching that the Buddha gives. He calls gratification, danger, and escape. So long as we only see the gratification, if we're not really looking at what we're doing, if we don't see the unwholesome image, then we will be doomed to keep repeating it over and over and over again. But if we wake up and can see the danger, now we can weigh the danger and the gratification, and sometimes we'll do it, sometimes we don't. But we're breaking that old habit. And so now we keep repeating that process, and many times now we will throw the unwholesome out and not take its gratification because now we can see the danger of it. Or another way of saying it, we do recognize that right now is a good time to shut my mouth. <laughs> because there's danger in the way that I'm going with it. Okay, so take it uh, and, and shut up. And that if we can shut up the mouth, then we can also change the kind of thoughts that we've got. That we can change this. We can recognize that this is dangerous now, even though I'm getting great pleasure and gratification out of being the number one asshole in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> it begins to have some danger associated with it because somebody else is going to have the same thought. <laughs> that he's the biggest household in the bar. In fact, I would say that maybe 10% of all the movies is that particular point right there. And when we begin to see the danger in it, then we don't go into bars and act like an asshole anymore. In fact, we stop going to bars and we stop acting like an asshole because it's dangerous. <laughs> uh, I, I'm curious, Damarado, what are your thoughts on people that they see the danger, but they continue to do something self-destructive anyway. There are plenty of They haven't of really like, seen the danger because for them, the advantage still outweighs the danger. And by the way, you're, you're walking directly into a whole lecture on psychopathy versus uh, sociopathy. What's the difference between a psychopath and a, uh, uh, a sociopath? The answer in functionality is not much. The distinction yeah. really is how learned did they, uh, how how young were they when they learned that only they count and nobody else does. Mm -hmm. So it's a survival issue. It's really, really early. And some people who have it become sociopaths and others who have it will become um, very dependent upon others. Uh, you can call it a um, uh, uh, separation anxiety disorder. That they can't tolerate somebody walking away from them. And so they'll throw a fight to keep them there. Okay. Which is some of the behavior that you've seen in the White House in recent years. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, so 
the reality then is, is that can we change brain chemistry? Or the question then is, is that even a sociopath or a psychopath, can they change brain chemistry? The answer to that is, guys, that's what we're doing here. <laughs> that's what this is all about, is let's get some better brain chemistry going if we can remember to. To remember to look at what we're doing and making it help some change and, and put some uh, joy juice in the old noggin. That's the whole point of it, is, is that we can change brain chemistry. The question is, is can we keep remembering to and keep doing it over and over and over again? Then in a way, we could say we are all psychopaths. <laughs> Actually, we could be better said and get away with it by saying we're all sociopaths. Psychopaths, they say, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> Here, let me do uh, an autopsy on your brain to make sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I remember uh, reading when I was a teenager once, Ayn Rand said something along the lines of, there's no such thing as an altruistic act. <laughs> and uh, and I agree What with a it. selfish thing to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, what are your thoughts on that? You know, do you think well, there really I, is such and a thing Rand really... taught selfishness big time as if it were the yes. only way to go. Right. Atlas shrugged. Throw the world off your shoulders. You're not responsible for carrying the world around. Okay? That's actually a pretty good thing. Fountainhead is when she begins to go too far. <laughs> but I'm all in for shrugging Atlas. That's the whole point, is to stop identifying with anything in the world. Shrug your Atlas. Throw it off. Stand up free and tall, knowing that you can breathe well now that you're not bent over with the weights of your own mind. <laughs> but Anne Rand, there's really not much there beyond that selfishness. And what she doesn't recognize is, is that when one stays very, very selfish, then they are already not friends with the rest of the world. But then they're not friends with themselves either. If one, if a sociopath could become friends with himself inside rather than driven by what he is supposed to think that he's supposed to do and see the way that things really are, he can become friends with himself on the inside. And by doing so in the process, he can learn to treat others well also. This is possible. But from all the evidence that I have seen, it is tough going. <laughs> Mainly because the sociopath thinks that he's getting the gratification that he deserves by acting the way he, he does act. And he's not capable of seeing the danger because he won't look. A 
Another way of saying it is, is that most uh, of those who have, if they ever do actually get labeled as uh, uh, psychotic or, uh, excuse me, uh, sociopath or psychopath, is done by the court ordered uh, workings because they will not seek a religion or uh, uh, a therapist or anything like that to get any help because they've already determined that whoever there is out there is not going to help me. They're my mark. And so in, in a way, you could say that they never develop beyond the alligator stage. <laughs> But most of us have come further than that so that we're willing to look and look and keep looking and keep looking and keep making that evaluation. Is this worth doing or what? I see the gratification that I'm getting out of it. Now I can begin to see the dangers in doing it. And now I've got a better choice. And if I can begin to weigh and see that the dangers are actually a bit more weighty than the advantages, because I'm not really getting any advantage out of it anyway. Wow, this is dangerous. Then I'll put a stop to it. Like petty crime, shoplifting, that kind of thing. But when you're a kid, there's not much danger. So spank your hand or whatever like that. But if you're a, a cop, or uh, a well-known preacher in town and you get caught on what Walmart's cameras is shoplifting and whatnot like that, that's really dangerous. So one time it was an advantage to do a bit of shoplifting. Now it's so dangerous and the gratification is so small, it's really a stupid move. So this is a clear example of it, is that we have to weigh our, our behaviors and weigh our thoughts and weigh our feelings. When we do, we begin to act according to reality because there's actually, you could say that finding the dangers is just actually seeing what's real out there. But instead of seeing the pothole too late, or seeing it and not recognizing it all, or seeing it and say, I can handle this pothole, are all really stupid things. The wise driver is going to see that pothole so far in advance, he's going to take whatever appropriate action he needs, including speeding up or slowing down so that he can get in part of the lane so that he can avoid that pothole. Now that's a good driver. Uh, Don Rado, I have a question. So what is a recent, yeah. Go right <laughs> so, ahead. <laughs> yeah, so what is a recent example in your life where you've seen a pothole far ahead and you've decided to avoid it? Uh, it comes to mind when I was driving as a monk that I was <laughs> known well to be a good driver because I was watching where we were going. Okay, that's one. This whole island is full of potholes. 
number two. <laughs> I'll say it like this. This is an island full of sand. And sand on concrete streets doesn't work the same way that concrete without sand works. So drivers who come to the island who don't know how to drive on a potentially sandy spot on a highway are in danger. Also, if you don't know how to drive a motorbike, because 90% of the traffic here on this island is motorbikes. And the, uh, then uh, with that knowledge, you can now understand when I walk into the, uh, the local hospital, I find five or six or seven people all dressed with white cloth around the foot or an ankle or a knee or whatever like that, and they're almost always wrong. The Thai people don't do motorbike accidents. The Westerners do. Mm. Okay, does that give you an example now what we're talking about if using the word pothole? Sand on the road on this island is an issue, <laughs> not potholes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And I know because I carried a knee wound for several years because there was sand on that street. And when I cut out like that, the bike went right out from under me. So you got to look at the street, you got to look at where you're going. <laughs> the Dhamma eye, just all back to that. The eye of the Dhamma is to look with your physical eyes and reality and all of that kind of stuff. That it, there's that strong connection. It's not all mental. It's physicalized too. Got to look at what's going on. And an example of that right now is look at the fact that right now you're safe. You got no problems. <sighs> That's a good use of your eyes. It's just to look around and say, wow, things are really nice. <laughs> no worries, no problems, everything is okay. And so that's the quality of looking. Keep looking, keep recognizing everything's fine. But if we identify with something, like per se, identifying with an elephant or a donkey, where does that happen? There's no elephants here. There's no donkeys here. It's all in one's own mind. So when, <laughs> when you are watching the news, like you watch a movie, and you identify with what the um, uh, uh, the announcer is saying, and you identify with one of those images or the other, then you'll feel good or feel bad based upon the fact that you're identifying with one of them. But it's a very, very good thing to recognize that it's dangerous to do that, and I'm not getting such a great advantage out of teaming up with a team that doesn't always win. Let me start teaming up with teams that always win. Because if I team up with a team that's half the time they win and half the time they lose, like Republicans or Democrats, then I'll be feeling half good and half bad. <laughs> Give that up and always attach to a team that's worth attaching to. 
the reality of the situation, the Dhamma, that's worth attaching to. And in fact, that attachment that we have is very wholesome. And we can not only attach to the Dhamma, but we can become enthusiastically attached to it. And then the next step along the way is to become delightfully <laughs> enthusiastically attached to it. <laughs> I have so, a question about that. Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go right ahead, Robert. <laughs> Thank you. So, with respect to attaching to the Dhamma, you know, there's also the issue of, say, spiritual materialism. Where people get attached to, you know, the rites, rules, and rituals of the Dhamma, or they get attached to, you know, well, just that's the, the whole Dhamma point for... is to see that the rites, rules, and rituals are just that rites, rules, and rituals. They do have an advantage and they've got great dangers. And so you become uh, free from them. You escape the rituals, the rites, and rituals. That if, in fact, you're attached to the rites, rules, and rituals, then you're in a religion. That's what religions are all about. Well, doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting that you will get a good result after you're dead. <laughs> Which is something close to a kind of an insanity. Doing the same things over and over and over again, expect that someday, somehow, something will click. And basically, the thing that you need to have click is, is that, hey, this stuff has got value, but it's not going to do anything here. I'm going to have to do it in here. That's the place that we need to implant not a rite or a ritual, but a repetitive, wholesome thing. Because rites and rituals in and of themselves are not wholesome or unwholesome. It depends upon the mind of the one who's doing the ritual. Right. And so some people can do a particular chant and do it with, mm, I'm here with all the other monks and I won't stand out or enjoy myself or anything. I'll just him haul through it. Or there's the monks who can just, yeah. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> okay, so um, we can get into it and enjoy it. It depends upon our mind state. So don't say that rituals are good or bad because they're not good or bad in and of themselves. But if you think that the rituals are good and bad or among them, uh, or let us say good, uh, then you're going to wind up being ritualized. Yeah, I think that that's a good idea. Matt, why don't you stay long enough for us to shut this thing down? <laughs> okay. Does anybody have any final questions? Anything that we can do in five minutes? I don't know, maybe this is for another time, but since you briefly mentioned uh, Shraddha, 
I was I don't know if it was you or in another source that I heard that there were cases of people that do long retreats, solo retreats for years, and then when they're trying to uh, get back into a societal life, then they the they become like too sensitive or it's become like a shock to them. Yeah, there's a story about one particular monk, uh, I think a Westerner who did that. That in, in fact, I think part of the story was is that he couldn't even stand being in the car that was taking him out uh -huh. of the mountains that he was in. Right. Yeah. So and my so question jumped ship. My question would be like, uh, then you mentioned the example of uh, the news, like identifying with the news, like if there were among there was a monk that has never seen the news and he suddenly comes into contact with the news like how would he deal with it better being at the same level of skill by regularly coming into contact with the news or never coming into contact with the news or uh once in a while watching news either one is not the issue okay the real issue is Wakey, wakey, look at what you're doing. Recognize how you feel. Change while you're watching the news from the unwholesome into the wholesome. And if you identify with any political party or anything of that movie that you're watching, see that and recognize that you are not that. And come back and say, ha ha, I just woke up again. Got ya. You can't pull me into your mystery. Okay. That would be the, the way to handle it. It doesn't matter whether you've ever seen or didn't see or are in the habit or not in the habit of, of watching videos. That, <clears throat> or a real life car ride for that reason, for that much. Because mm -hmm. that monk could have just sat in that car and just enjoyed the show. Instead of identifying with a monk who couldn't take a car ride. Yeah. So he wasn't practicing correctly during his solo retreat, maybe. Well, I would suppose that everybody could figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> or another way of asking, I suppose that no one would actually want that to happen for themselves, seeing if it was a good thing. <clears throat> I don't think that the number of volunteers to go take a three week three-year retreat in, in the uh, mortgage uh, is going to, I mean, the, the, the recruitment list is going to have a major jump with that story. That all of a sudden, 10,000 people want to leave their jobs and go live in the mountains for three years so that they can fall out of a car because they can't stand the ride. I don't think that that's going to happen. <laughs> But if it's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> it may be just what this guy needed to get out of that car and head back up into the hills and spend more time up there. It's more <laughs> and by the way, you don't know who was in the car and who and whether they were yapping at him and asking ten thousand questions and he just man, I don't need this. <laughs> could have been a sociopath. <laughs> Or everybody in the car with him could have been. The whole point is we don't know the goodness or the badness. We don't know the story. What we do know is what the results of such a story is going to have upon 
it's not going to give very many people a Dhamma eye, is what I'm saying. It's not a story like that. It's not a lion, a lion cub saving video. <laughs> it's not an inspirational video. <clears throat> okay. Guys, let's finish with this. Any last remarks? Don't worry, be Actually, happy. Don't worry, be happy. That's right. Look at what you've got. I mean, you're all in a marvelous place right now. Enjoy where you are with nobody bothering you. No alligators, no boogeyman, no SWAT team. Everything is cool. <laughs> so long, guys. See you later. Thanks for another Take nice care, time. everyone. You guys have a good week. Good weekend.